Hello, and welcome to the What's Next podcast. My name is Liz Smith, owner of Liz Smith Law, and on this show, I share conversations to investigate building and leaving your legacy, estate planning for young families, supporting aging loved ones and parents, and other topics around aging, death, and other life transitions that will affect each of us. This is your source for hard-to-find resources in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get each and every episode of our show. This was one of those episodes that went by really quickly in my recording, and I feel like I could have talked to Jonathan for much longer, but I'm excited to share information. We talked about sustainable, responsible impact investing, socially responsible investing, B corporations, uh, businesses, corporation companies and our investment dollars leading to change. I have a quick uh, disclaimer before we get into the show, and that is as follows. Clients of First Pacific Financial may own securities mentioned in this podcast. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell any security. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of What's Next. With me as my guest today is Jonathan Thompson, a financial advisor with First Pacific Financial. Uh, Jonathan's background as a professional cellist and professor informs his approach to financial planning. He was active performing and recording in Southern California for 14 years and traveled to perform throughout Europe, Asia, and Canada. These experiences in music, along with playing youth sports, led to a fascination with performance psychology, specifically how musicians, athletes, and business people structure their lives to achieve excellence. To this end, he wrote his doctoral dissertation to explore how marathon training can inform better musical preparation and teaching methods. Jonathan brings a passion for being a mentor and coach into financial planning by listening and asking important questions he guides clients through their finances and helps them realize their best lives. When not enjoying home life with his wife and daughter, he enjoys running, hiking, playing tennis, and traveling. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Liz. All right. I'm excited to have you and to talk about investing in finance and wealth, but I can't uh, resist just diving into how you shifted into financial advising from your your past. Yeah, I have to say it was a little weird hearing that read out loud. I guess uh, that is a, a fair summary of my previous career and how um, you know I try to bridge that gap from what I used to do professionally as a teacher and musician to what I'm concerned with now in financial planning. But for me, it's all really about communication, um, really about listening to clients and responding, uh, you know, to their questions and and possibly needing to restate things multiple different ways to be a good teacher and communicator so that they can receive knowledge, uh, you know, in a, in a comfortable way. So it really comes back to, yeah, that communication piece. And then also wanting to, to be a good coach or, um, just a trusted advisor for our clients. And did you just kind of fall into that? Take the path. I mean, I can see that from, so I became a health coach as I was trying to figure out what in the heck to do with my life. And I was miserable working as a lawyer for the state. And I love, I mean, there's so much you can do from kind of that coaching realm. And I feel that I'm a coach as my, in my attorney role, and I can definitely see the parallel with financial advisor, but there must've been some bridge that you uh, crossed or some path that led you to. Yeah. I mean, there's a practical aspect to it. Uh, I don't know if you had this experience as well, but for me in my previous career, I would sort of play out, okay, where is this heading 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And I would be in orchestras or recording sessions and looking around at people older than myself. And, you know, when you're young and in music school or just out of music school, you have so much passion and energy. And then it seemed like there was a trend where, you know, as the decades pile on, there was just less excitement for the actual uh, performance and, and uh, you know, doing the craft. And that made me feel really sad. You know, I didn't want that to happen to me and I could sense that it was starting to happen. And I just wanted, you know, music to be more for the enjoyment rather than 
for the business aspect and making a living and supporting a family and all of that. So, you know, it, it became a personal question of, is this what I want to be doing 20 years from now? And on one hand, yes. I, I mean, I still love playing music, but on the other hand, just the difficulty of that lifestyle was becoming more and more of a burden. And I just started looking at other options, um, you know, from reading data about which career fields uh, would be in high demand uh, for, for many years to come and uh, what education requirements there were, what fit my personal interests. And financial planning really uh, was a pretty easy transition because, again, it is about you know listening and having those long-term relationships uh, with clients, similar to working with students. So there, there were a series of uh, certified financial planner education courses that prepare you to take the CFP exam. Um, once I'd identified that this was, in fact, a career field that I wanted to explore. I did all of those courses, really enjoyed it, um, built on sort of my own knowledge of treating myself as my own business as a musician and building on that curiosity for finance and investing, uh, long-term planning. Um, those courses were really fun for me and exciting. So I just kept going one step at a time and, and finally did pull the trigger to change the career field. And uh, that also involved moving back to the Pacific Northwest, which was great for my family as well. So it was uh, many decisions over many years, actually, but uh, was actually a pretty smooth transition for me. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. I think I don't know. I think I'm not alone in growing up in our culture and feeling that you should know right off the bat what that, where you'll end up and what's the right fit for you. And I forget where it was, maybe a podcast. I just heard it very blatant recently that was, we go through many paths before finding what might be a great fit and maybe, and that might change over time too. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, I love talking about money or really uh, personal finance. And of course, that's talking with financial advisors. They could have a different take, perhaps. Um, but what I was really excited to dive in with you is the firm that you work with. And do I have that right for Specific Financial? Yes. The name. And so my understanding is that you have a focus of... T tell me the terminology, but environmentally sustainable investing or socially conscious investing, but really working with, with clients to find investments that aren't just any business, but specific types of businesses. So help me with the language there. But yeah, and there are many different ways to sort of label uh, this area that, that we're focused on, particularly in my team. Uh, our firm has multiple advising teams, and we can talk about this a bit later, but we have a little bit of a unique approach to helping our clients with multiple advisors. But um, I work on a team of three that focuses on ESG investing, and that's environmental, social, and corporate governance. A lot of our clients, in particularly in the Pacific Northwest, are, are very focused on the environmental aspect. But um, there are also a lot of social issues that you can focus on in your investments, as well as uh, corporate governance. And there's overlap in those areas. But ESG, um, the Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance label, has, seems to be kind of uh, becoming the most commonly recognized one. I also hold a designation that's uh, CSRIC, or Chartered SRI Counselor. And SRI is another term uh, that even has a couple different labels or, or definitions by itself, but um, that stands for sustainable, responsible, and impact. And that's uh, particularly for investing. So socially um, responsible investing is another term with those same letters, but it, it does get very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about the uh, what it means. The CSG, uh, CSRIC, or ESG. Uh, ESG. That's where I was yeah. going for. Uh, let's start there. In what environmentally social? No. Yep. Environmental, social, governance. And corporate governance. Corporate right. governance. Okay. What does that boil down to? How, how would you 
What does that mean? Yeah, there are many different areas under each of those labels, but basically we're reviewing our investments. Uh, If you're looking at the environmental aspect, there are many different ways to approach this, but one would be just to exclude um, fossil fuels. That's probably the most common investment screen that would fit under the E of ESG. But you could also look at the best actors in a certain uh, industry or or, uh, space. So, for example, there's some controversy uh, over Exxon because Exxon is included in some ESG investments because they are uh, reviewed as being the best amongst their peers. But others would rather just completely remove all fossil fuel companies. So there's always a question of whether you're going to exclude, uh, for example, a public utility company that because they have some fossil fuels in the mixture of the electricity they provide to their customers, or if you should actually encourage companies that are improving by reducing their fossil fuels um, and by further, you know, uh, bringing more investment dollars into their company, being allowing them and encouraging them to continue that trend of improving their practices. Okay. So there's a lot of different definitions of people that may want their investment dollars geared towards in a certain way. They want to take control. Mm -hmm. And tell me more about the CSRIC designation and what that entailed and means. Yeah, so that's a a course uh, available for financial advisors that really goes into different issues around you know, sustainable, uh, responsible, and impact investing. So, for example, just even what I was discussing, some of those issues about, you know, which types of screens or, you know, ways to review your investment portfolio uh, exist and which uh, clients may respond best to or, um, you know, from the stance of portfolio construction, what's going to be the best to use in your practice. There's also many other areas of of concern, like, um, for example, proxy voting is a big issue where investors have the ability to vote on issues that are brought to corporate boards. And um, there's a question whether or not advisors should vote proxies on behalf of their clients or provide education to allow uh, clients to make those decisions themselves. Um, Currently, we do not vote proxies for our clients, but where possible, we we do provide information on issues that we think are really important. And we may even proactively say, there's going to be this vote, you'll get this letter uh, from your custodian and uh, you know, invite you to vote on this issue. This is what we think you should do. Um, there's also a lot of uh, reporting uh, you know, greenwashing is very common where a company will say, you know, we care about the environment, we're going to net zero or whatever the new term is, but there's not a lot of accountability. And currently there's uh, a push by the SEC to make uh, standardized reporting requirements. Um, again, environment is is easiest to kind of uh, discuss or track, but this goes in uh, social and corporate governance as well, because this ESG term is just thrown around, but the SEC is starting to say, hey, look, like we need you to report on these issues rather than just put some marketing piece in your corporate sustainability report. You can make it look really, really nice, but are you actually doing what you say? So these are the types of issues that, that were part of that CSRIC course. Can we go back to the proxy voting? So I, and we'll talk about how you work and, and how the portfolio, but I, I work with you as part of my portfolio. I have stock in XYZ company. And then do you have an example of what kind of proxy vote has come up that you would der- perhaps provide guidance on just what type of? Yeah, so I'll give an example of probably the most famous proxy vote in the last couple of years that I can think of. This is not one that our clients were involved in uh, because it involved ExxonMobil and we don't hold Exxon in our ESG portfolios. But I I believe it was last summer, uh, there was a a sort of activist investor group, um, engine number one, and they were able to buy a minority share less than 1% of ExxonMobil, 
But this allowed them to have a seat at the table and basically bring shareholder resolution um, to... Well, there were shareholder resolutions, but also they were able to vote in new board members. Um, but basically, this type of uh, issue or this type of activist investor you know, um, push meant that people who owned uh, enough shares of ExxonMobil were able to vote on those board members but also on the proxy votes uh, to say, you know, we need to, to change our policies and practices. Um, that sort of thing is happening pretty commonly. Um, some shareholder votes may be on, on very small and, and sort of insignificant issues or, or ones that we don't really have an opinion about. Okay. This is fascinating and it's a whole lot of information I know nothing about. So I'm glad you're here and I feel almost, well, I'll just follow my curiosity, not having the background and quite knowing where to take the conversation. Um, when I first started investing, when I was very possibly pre, it was pre-college and I had a job at, anyway, I'm obviously going back in my memory, remembering this period of time. No, it wasn't pre-college. It was during college. I took a year off and had a job and started investing. And I chose Ariel Mutual Funds. And I do not know the details, but I knew at the time I was very interested in socially conscious investing. And they, I, I think, are somewhere on that realm. All I know is their motto is slow and steady wins the race. But um, I'm wondering if since I was was that age, which has been quite a while now. I, it's really not something I've heard all that much about. Is it a newer um, push towards really thinking about where your dollars go? Are we seeing more action in that area, in the area that you work? Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, the actual uh, values-based investing is another term that was previously used. This has been a long, around for many decades. Um, uh, earlier established, you know, in mutual fund companies would be uh, Pax World Funds or Domini or Calvert. They've been around for decades, but in the last, I would say, decade or so, um, there's been more of a push, maybe with new technologies, uh, you know, more capability of having these screens on the investments. Um, I guess a change in language and more marketing has really brought this to the forefront. Also because uh, climate change is really more in the forefront. I, I think, again, that environmental piece is, is really, really um, in the everyday worldview now. Uh, on people's minds. So um, there has been just a flood of new dollars in the ESG investment space. I forget how many trillions now, but it is rapidly accelerated in the last five years. And so much so that, you know, our hope is really in the future, the label ESG may not really be necessary because we're investing in companies now that are poised for sustainability for the future. And if you look at fossil fuel companies, even they are admitting now, we're not going to make these environmental improvements in our practices um, because, you know, we're tree huggers or something. It's because we recognize that our company is not on a sustainable model with the use of fossil fuels. It's just, you know, from the planet to the customers and clients themselves, they're just not willing to uh, consume our product and invest in our company because of these practices. So it's really more of a business discussion now, whereas 50 years ago, it was really more about um, advocacy and um, protests. Yeah. Well, I'm just loving the shift, which I'm embarrassed I haven't thought of, but I've, I've, I, I think a lot of if we're going to make improvements in climate change, taking that example, I think it's largely going to come from private company innovation. And definitely my choices are going to impact my, my, myself and other consumers. But at some point, I, was, I brought this up with my husband recently, and I was like, I was trying to think if we could go a week without buying plastic. And I 
don't, I mean, I, I don't know how, <laughs> if we want to eat. And, and so that comes from, from somewhere other than my consumer choices, but just this shift of, well, if I was using my investment dollars in, in company, so not really here, just my own light bulb, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and our client conversations go in many different directions. I mean, that's a great uh, sort of question or challenge you pose to yourself. And without, you know, a, a great answer, then you're looking for another possible solution. So, for example, um, we've had clients ask us about changing their banks because, uh, you know, one bank might uh provide liquidity to companies or practices that, that they don't support. So we do research, okay, well, you can use this credit card um, that supports environmental causes, or, you know, you have an unavoidable amount of travel. So here are some options for, you know, purchasing carbon offsets as a monthly subscription or as each time you, you purchase a flight. It's really fun to get those sorts of questions or concerns from, from clients and try to find a solution that fits for them. Yeah. I think, Jonathan, maybe it's a good way into this and how you operate to start with how you start working with someone that comes to you. Um, and I don't, or is it, is it, the firm seems to advertise towards socially conscious, but perhaps subtly on the website. Um, and it sounds like your group, you said, has a particular focus. Um, are people finding you really with that interest towards the ESG investing? Yes and no. I would say as a whole, our firm is focused on financial planning first and foremost, because we really want to make good recommendations based on each client's situation and values. So we go through a full three-meeting onboarding process that basically goes through every financial planning area, whether it's estate planning, taxation, investments, insurance, you know, whatever the client's needs are, we want to have the full big picture in mind before we say invest your dollars this way or you know, work with someone like Liz to do your estate plan. Um, because if we invest in one way, that may have tax consequences later on down the road, which may affect their estate plan at the end of life. So we actually don't ask for business from our clients until we pretty much know everything we can learn about them, about their finances. So it is a fairly intensive process early on. Um, those three meetings, uh, obviously, aside from the meeting themselves, does require a lot of disclosure of documents, uh, tax returns, uh, previous investment statements, all of that sort of thing. So you're already like really starting to build that trust and relationship early on. And we do talk a lot about values and, you know, sort of hopes and dreams, even and where this is all going in the future. And that really allows us to, again, just have the whole big picture in mind and not just the, the numbers on the page, but who they are as people and what they want to see in their lives beyond just their finances. And why can you get more specific? I'm curious why three meetings, if there's a structure to them that you touch on certain things each meeting? Yeah, definitely. The first meeting is really just to get to know them and, and have a casual conversation. Uh, if there seems to be sort of a disconnect or, you know, reluctance or resistance, whether it's just the personality is not fitting, you know, we don't want to go through this invasive process with them if there's really not a good uh, comfort level to begin with. So that meeting is usually about an hour. And then if the and client... Is, just to interject, it sounded like that was pre-disclosure of the financial information. Correct. I mean, if things are sort of flowing nicely, uh, you know, these clients may start to disclose some of their finances in a general sense, just to give us an idea of, of where things are heading or what, what they might be uh, dealing with. Um, that flows pretty naturally into a second meeting, which is a data gathering process. We have an online tool to share documents before that meeting, and we want to gather as much information as we can about their finances before that second meeting. And then when we meet, that second time is a little bit shorter, maybe 30 minutes, just to go through our financial planning tool that lists out everything we know about them. 
And we're going to verify that we've input all of that data correctly and maybe get a little bit more context. If we have some questions about how something came to be, uh, we get to know the history a little bit better. And sometimes during that process, the client is looking back, ooh, that's from 20 years ago. I don't want that anymore. Or I thought it was going to be different than it is. And um, that can lead to some other conversations as well. I'm smiling, <laughs> not that anyone can see me, but I find that because we gather financial information through estate planning as well. And um, yeah, it's amazing how we can have old accounts that you forget about. But anyway. Yeah. And then the, the last meeting uh, typically is a couple of weeks later. And that is sort of our Super Bowl <laughs> as advisors. Uh, we do the most talking in that meeting uh, because that's when we present all of our recommendations and we list out by all of those financial planning topic areas improvements that we see or moves that you know may really be necessary and with some level of urgency, depending on their goals and life stage. But um, at that time, if it makes sense for us to work with the client, then we'll ask for their business. Um, and that really consists of transferring accounts to our investment management. Um, that's the only way that we get paid. There's no incentive for us to work with any certain mutual fund manager. Uh, if we have insurance recommendations or you know tax preparation needs or estate planning needs, we work with other professionals, but we don't receive any kind of referral bonus or fee or anything like that for anything that we recommend. Um, that allows us to keep that conflict of interest out of the picture. Um, we are fiduciaries and, and required to act in our best in the client's best interest uh, as uh, certified financial planners. Okay. I think there's lots of directions I could go here. I want to uh, keep us with the sustainable investing, and then I want to dive from there more into the nuts and bolts about the operation financial. Um, but so at what point are you, if someone, well, let's, I'll go about it this way. So you came and sent me a tool to list out my most important goals in the realm of social environmental impact. How does that come into play? How do you work with someone to identify which social causes they would most want to be involved with? Right. Yeah. We use the ethos ESG tool to give us a little bit of insight into what types of causes clients really care about and might like to include more in their investment portfolios. At this time, we're not customizing every client's portfolio specifically to them, but this may be something that we're able to do in the future. Um, this quiz gives a kind of, uh, it's called an impact persona, which uh, is something like an inclusive earth innovator, which really breaks down um, areas that are most important to that person. So this uh, one I'm looking at, climate action is- When we can share, are you looking at mine? I, I am, yes. Okay, yeah. feel free to share. Uh, yeah, climate action was your uh, actually second uh, highest score, but um, inclusive economy, so more like gender uh, and uh, racial diversity, it's very important to you. That was 27.8%. Uh, then you also had water and sanitation issues scored very highly, sustainable resource use, I think uh, reducing waste and more re uh, recycling. Uh, and then education rounded out your top five. So when we look at these, this can prompt uh, many you know, discussions, but it also allows us to look at specific investments in your portfolio and how they score in these five areas. And if there are some that are really scoring low, we would have the ability to discuss with you if you wanted us to look at removing those from the portfolio and replacing them from a similar company from an investment perspective that would have a higher score in those five areas. And when you talk about the portfolio and what you're putting together for clients, 
you said it's not necessarily individualized per client. So I'm, what I'm picturing is that that means that I don't come in and you don't select actual stocks just for me personally, but that you already have a number of, I, I'm envisioning portfolios built up with certain stocks in those portfolios. And then depending on someone's both investment goals, time horizons, and this type of the survey that you just were discussing, then you pick the portfolio selections for that client. Is that at all? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So we start from the highest level. We're looking at the asset allocation, just stocks and bonds. We also use real estate investments. Um, so that's going to be the most important piece to get right first. And that really is going to be more about the time horizon, income needs, you know, somebody who has a pension looking, you know, a few years from retirement is going to have potentially a different allocation in their investments than somebody who doesn't have a pension and only has their 401k um, to sustain them through retirement. So our first conversations are really going to be about what that correct blend of stocks and bonds is going to be. And, and that, again, gets into the bigger picture of cash flow, um, maybe lifestyle choices, uh, you know, some of their needs for retirement. So once we have that asset allocation set, then we can talk about whether ESG investing is appropriate for that client if, if they really are, you know, uh, first of all, so, are sort of aware of these issues and interested in them. Uh, from an investment perspective, some people, it's, it's not for them. And it's not really our place to say, no, you absolutely have to have an ESG portfolio. So then once uh, we've identified, okay, if they're in an ESG portfolio, we've got their allocation set, we have um, our model portfolios. Um, and within those, um, depending on the size of the portfolio, we have an additional layer uh, which does allow for a little bit more customization. Um, that's called the resilient portfolio. And that's a collection of about 65 in individual company stocks that are um, chosen for their resilience and, uh, again, for their sustainability long-term. Many of them uh, have that environmental screen over them, but um, they all have the ESG screens um, applied. So we have that data that we can review in the Ethos ESG tool. And then if we have, for example, that uh, resilient portfolio in, <laughs> in this client's portfolio, and then we see that there's a, a, one or two of these areas that they're particularly focused on, and maybe there's one or two companies that are in that resilient portfolio that, that don't uh, live up to the client's expectations, we absolutely could look at excluding them from their portfolio. That type of customization currently doesn't happen like in a majority of our clients' cases, but um, the ability to use this ethos ESG tool really does allow for these conversations and they are happening more and more. There is another um, capability of this tool that's uh, direct indexing that's just now being released. Um, this is kind of a newer trend in the investment world. So uh, index investing would be, you know, like uh, Vanguard, for example, was kind of the, the champion of this. And you basically just buy everything uh, on the S&P 500 or you know, everything in the healthcare stocks. So direct investing would allow you to kind of mimic these broad indexes, but you own each piece personally instead of just investing in the Vanguard fund or the Fidelity fund. So this is something that we're exploring, you know, um, offering to our clients in the future. I will say just going through the tool and it took just a couple few minutes and had me identify it was it was challenging because it has a bunch of you start with a bunch of different key areas like climate change or it once said uh life environment what was it something really I think I can find it life on earth <laughs> I thought well I I do care about life on earth but um uh, 
it was hard. It was hard to narrow down. And then to the extent that I was rating things, of course, then I feel it, it makes you feel a bit like you don't care about what you're not rating. Um, but with that said, I could see as a tool for you just to get to know the person you're working with too. Absolutely. I was listening just the last couple of days. We're recording this on a Monday. So over the weekend, I've been listening to the psychology of money and really enjoying it. But something he said that I thought was really interesting is, is the author, which is Morgan Housel. I think um, if you're investing in companies you really care about, that you're more likely to stay invested when things get a little rocky, which I know with a financial advisor, you're going to help your clients when things get rough and they want to uh, potentially pull money out of the market. But I just thought that was a really interesting perspective and could really ring true that if it's for more than, I don't know, I won't go into the psychology, but I just thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, definitely. I think I might extend that a little bit. I don't know if this is the direction that you you would uh, to go with as well, but um, part of the reason we believe so much in this ESG investing is because public faith in institutions is just at a low point. <laughs> and um, there's so much gridlock in the Senate, particularly right now, I would say that people are really actually more loyal to individual companies. And, uh, you know, we think of consumer products like Apple or Nike. I mean, they're just, if you buy Apple, you buy everything Apple. Some people just, if they are a sports fanatic, they have one brand that they're loyal to. Um, I think everybody's probably pretty aware of that or comfortable with that assertion. But if you think about it from an investment perspective, like you just identified, yeah, absolutely. If you feel loyalty to a company, if you if you like the investment that you own, you're going to stick with it. Today, the S&P uh, went into the bear market territory again. And you know this is uh, really scary. Um, but our approach is a long-term investment approach. If you pick good quality investments, you get that asset allocation right. We're going to keep reviewing that allocation, but for the most part, we're encouraging our clients to just stay the course. As their life situation changes, we may change the asset allocation, but the best thing that our clients can do is just stay invested for the long term. So if we can get the best quality investments from the onset. And if we can identify those causes and those companies that they really believe in, that's going to help them stay invested during those difficult times like now. Yeah. I think it's also a nice, it can make your investing more real if you're actually taking a look at what you're investing in rather than just kind of this black box that, you know, historically is going to mean your money grows over time. But I want to shift gears, kind of take a sharp turn and then perhaps circle back. But I, it sounds like your company not doesn't just work in this ESG area, but that your company also has some business practices. And it may sound for our guests like the, the whole podcast is to highlight for a specific financial. And in, to some extent, yeah, because you're doing really interesting things. But I also think, you know, I'm in my law practice interested as a business owner, we do get to make our own changes. You know, I'll never be have stock. I'll never be a publicly traded company, but we get to make our own. We can make a lot of difference in the decisions we make. And I'd love to explore some of what the company is doing as a company. Yeah, definitely. Um, we became a B Corp uh, about 18 months ago. And that's something that was a pretty exhaustive process. Uh, actually, it started before I joined the firm two years ago. But being a B Corporation really is a voluntary process that says, you know, these are standards that we adhere to. And it really does tie into ESG investing. Um, it also ties into the uh, uh, stakeholder capitalism movement that was more popular maybe a few years ago. Um, there was a roundtable letter that went around many different uh, corporate CEOs signed on to this. But this is basically saying that 
more than just the the shareholders of a company, there are many other um, people or um, things that have an interest in how a company is run and what their practices are. So think of the environment, um, the community where that company is based, where the employers live, the employees themselves, uh, the customers, beyond just caring basically about um giving maximum shareholder return. So that's the stakeholder capitalism movement that the B Corporation is really connected to. So we disclosed um, what the average commute for our employees to the office was, uh, how much paper we use, um, what our community involvement uh, has been for volunteering or um, you know, maybe donations. Also, there's a review of diversity, equity, and inclusion practices, uh, or even just the statements that we include, uh, as well as even hiring practices. So there's a voluntary survey and then review that took actually a couple of years before we became a B Corporation. Uh, it's something that we're just starting to talk about more, but something that we're really proud of, frankly. Um, other B Corporations, actually Ethos is one, uh, but uh, companies like Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, uh, it's a little B with a circle around it that you may see on email footers or even on um, you know product packaging. I follow Seth Godin and he just made Akimbo a B Corp, which I had been aware of, but. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Un unsurprising <laughs> yeah. but but neat um great well thank you for sharing and i want to talk about the financial side of things <laughs> with the time that we have left some somewhat in in financial advising investing there's a lot of places we could go go with it um, but I know you do this very deliberative evaluation process at the beginning. And I think don't necessarily take anybody on because it may not be right for them at this point in their life to work with you. And I'm curious to start into that, what your ideal client, who that, that that's, that's a really broad question. And actually really where I want to go is thinking about if you have any advice you're willing, I guess where I'm trying to go is thinking of someone who has <laughs> the pre before they need a financial advisor. But as I ask that, I realize that that's, you know, the world of like financial personal finance, which is really broad. So let me just anywhere you want to go with this, if there's some kind of how you think about your ideal client and who you work with and don't work with specifically. Yeah, I think our ideal client typically uh, is at or near a significant life change. Um, these tend to be the time periods where they're, I'm frankly, most willing to talk to a financial advisor and tackle some of those issues that may be a little bit uncomfortable. So, I mean, it could be a, a death of a loved one. It could be college planning. It could be retirement. Obviously, it's a very common one. Um, but it really is a long-term relationship that is best, you know, for for the client and ourselves to to cultivate and maintain. So, you know, at the beginning, it is important to to have some pretty serious discussions and and you know be willing to be vulnerable and and open up about some things that you know maybe from time to time we'd rather avoid so i i would say as far as you know portfolio size or life stage i mean there's no one client that we're looking for but it is just that relationship piece and again if if it's not flowing well and just doesn't seem like a good fit, then we'll still provide that, you know, list of, of recommendations. And there are many things that, you know, clients can, can take away and, and um, do themselves to start to check off that list and, and make progress on their own before working with us or potentially even going to another advisor and comparing and, and, you know, making some of those improvements themselves. Mm -hmm. 
uh, with an with another advisor. So, um, you know, we just believe that that's the best way to do business. And uh, if it doesn't work out, you know, maybe at a later date, um, you know, we can just start the conversation up again. For younger clients in particular, or or, or maybe um, you know just a little bit different uh, pace. We do have another team called the Spark team that works with clients more on a monthly subscription basis. And um, there are different levels of service that um, clients can choose there, um, but uh, it's a little bit different model uh, that's also worth checking out. I want to ask more about that, but first I want to go back to, you said something about really tough conversations and give me some examples. What I mean, I know lots of people don't like talking about their finances. And I mean, I could imagine it's like that you shouldn't have a car like that with your current finances. Is it those kind of conversations or were we talking deeper? I mean, I think a lot about money investing is psychology. It is. I mean, we definitely see clients of all different sort of, uh, you know, psychologies, I guess, or spending habits. I, I don't know that we really get into budgeting or, or you know, you should have this type of house or not. But I'm thinking more of those like, you know, I have a child with special needs that I want to provide for um, both now or after, you know, if something should happen to me. Um, those are difficult conversations to have with somebody that you're just meeting for the first time. Uh, so typically those are, there's going to be some sort of impetus to like, okay, this is something that I have to address now. Um, and obviously we approach that with a, a lot of, um, I deliberation isn't the right word, but we do take a sort of cautious approach. You know, we're not in a hurry to get through that onboarding process. We want to make sure that we know the full picture um, before we, we give advice. I mean, there are different approaches to that sort of situation. Um, even end of life, uh, choices. Uh, sometimes these are things that we don't actually find out about until we've worked with a client for a couple of years. Um, but <clears throat> it's not our job to, you know, agree or disagree with the client's wishes, but to just facilitate that process for them. And we do have clients who have maybe a little bit less uh, typical requests that we want to honor. Um, so I, I guess my mind was thinking more in those sort of uh, more serious life choices or personality, um, not personality, but, you know, some, some of those more u- unique decisions or, or uh, worldviews. You're getting to know your clients on a very deeply personal level to help yeah. guide. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best part of my job. I mean, I do that too. And it's, I mean, I get that it can be hard, but it also gives you that important insight to help them achieve their goals in the same way that I do that in a legal planning perspective. Totally shifting gears, but I really wanted to find a way to get this story somehow into this conversation. Again, it's just, I'm not plugging a psychology of money, though I do like it, but I just because I was listening to it. But he told the author tells a story that Ariana Grande sued her financial advisor. And he came back and said, well, was I supposed to advise her that if she spends all her money, she'll have stuff and not the money? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which I, I suppose, actually, that kind of raised something for me in terms of how do you view the role of the financial advisor? Because there is, I'm giving you $200,000 and I'm hoping that you will invest it wisely to grow. That's a very, very different conversation than what is my budget? How much of my income should I be putting into, you know, giving you to invest? And I guess I'm assuming you're more on the how, how, how do you balance that? Where do you see yourself? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question because it for us, it all comes back to being a fiduciary and acting in our client's best interest. So it's all about their goals and objectives. Yeah, I'm not 
trying to make everybody achieve the same result. I mean, uh, for one client, their objective may be absolutely to accumulate as much wealth as possible to pass on to their children or to gift to charities at the end of their lives. Um, they may have a totally different mindset where, you know what, I have this small nest egg and it has to last me uh, for the rest of my life. But I intend to pass away with $1 left in my bank account. Another person may have a totally different approach that, you know what, I just want to tread water. I basically want to preserve the asset level that I have now. So how much can I spend? I don't want to grow. I don't want to decline in my portfolio. I just, I just want to keep the same standard of living that I have now. I mean, there could be many, many different goals or approaches. And it's really our job to honor what our clients want to achieve, not to overlay our, you know, personality or our, our decisions or, or uh, plan for them. So you're not coming at it from a, you should have a 20% savings rate or 50, but rather, okay, your goal is to retire early. Then that's what means with your income, you better have this type of savings rate. Correct. And clients often ask us like, okay, I have this much money to invest. What rate of return can you give me? Well, it's an impossible question to answer. Nobody knows what the markets are going to do. But even that, it's not even it's not even our goal, not even close. It's like, well, tell us what problem you want us to solve. If you just want to make the most amount of money possible, that's not really what we do. We're not stock pickers per se. We're not just trying to you know, ratchet up your return. We're solving for more specific goals. What Again, cash flow and retirement or retire early or provide X number of dollars for this charity that I really love. Um, those are the types of puzzles that we really enjoy planning, but we're less interested in just um, maximizing. Mm -hmm. What about your role in helping clients think about how much to keep in cash? I think to me, that's a very personal decision. I think about it as how much flexibility do I want? Having money in cash allows me not to worry so much about the market. Um, I think it can give someone a lot of freedom in their work if they have, you know, six months set aside to not worry about uh, yeah. dealing with a horrible boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, it really depends on the client. Again, uh, if they're self-employed versus have very stable employment, um, if they plan to buy a house within the next couple of years, that's going to have a very different kind of cash need. Um uh, can you use a HELOC uh, to provide emergency funds if needed? I mean, the rule of thumb is three to six months in cash in a high interest savings account, but there are many, many different ways to provide liquidity uh, for special instances if needed, whether that's an emergency or purchase of a new home or business opportunity. Uh, we see all sorts of different scenarios that we're solving from. And more than just cash in a savings account, there are other tools that we can use as well. Will you circle back, Jonathan, and, and tell me a little more about the Spark team that has a monthly subscription and how that works? And then also, would you tie in with that what <laughs> or after how the your you said how your fees work? Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with our typical uh, advisory fee. So that's the only way that we get paid and sort of our traditional wealth management advising. So that includes all of the financial planning. Again, we do the financial planning upfront, but the uh, um, investment advisory fee is a percentage of the assets that we manage. So it depends on the asset level, but basically as the accounts grow, the percentage that you pay of the advisory fee is decreasing. For uh, some clients that have most of their, their investments in a 401k that we can't manage at their current employer, or you know, they prefer to do some of the investments themselves, um, having this sort of financial planning subscription through Spark may be more appropriate because they can still solve for those goals, still get advice in all those areas. Um, through Spark, they can actually even do uh, tax preparation. Um, 
And uh, if they would like to do investments through the Spark team, um, those are through Betterment. Our wealth management clients have their investments uh, custodianed at Charles Schwab. And the advising team chooses those investments for them. So just a slightly different model. Uh, and then uh, the, the f- monthly subscription rate depends on which level of service they choose. Neat. And you were talking about teams and we kind of glossed, glossed over that, but you said you work with a team and what does that mean to your clients? Yeah. So I work with Adam Wishard and Meredith Morse. So our team is team Cascadia, which sort of encompasses, you know, the geographical region that most of our clients are in. Uh, Adam is the, the leader of our team. He's been at first Pacific financial for I think 16 or 17 years. And he's just super knowledgeable, very humble guy, but, you know, basically the best advisor I've ever met. And uh, Meredith also is just phenomenal. She had a previous career in nonprofit and brings a lot of just life experience and care to our clients. So we always have two advisors in every meeting, which really helps us to understand the client really well. So we may hear something slightly differently in the meeting and then afterward have a conversation like, Hey, when this client said this, you responded this way, but I think they actually meant this. And we may have to go back to the client and clarify, or just that brings more depth to our understanding when we have multiple people receiving the same information, but maybe have a a slightly different interpretation. Um, That also for the client means that there's always going to be somebody available if they have a question or you know, if they need something a short notice, say uh, I'm out sick, uh, Adam and Meredith are already going to know the client well enough that if they call in, um, they'll always get somebody on the phone that can give them timely advice. And you talked about, uh, what was it, Cascadia, Team Cascadia? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been Juno and our main podcast audience is Southeast Alaskans. Do you want to talk a bit about serving us up here? Yeah, definitely. So we uh, have an office in Juneau and we, because of the pandemic, haven't been able to visit uh, our CEO and Adam actually uh, will be traveling there soon uh, just to make sure that the office is set up. We hope to be able to meet with clients in person soon. Uh, still no exact timeline on that. But this was a really natural fit uh, to to add this office and and some clients who worked with Sam Skaggs in the past, uh, just because of the you know geographic and sort of um, similarity in culture uh, to clients that we already have here. We're based in Vancouver, Washington, uh, and we have a lot of clients in Portland. Uh, we also are starting to um, build a client base in Seattle as well. So there's just kind of a natural fit uh, with the type of people there. But the resilient portfolio uh, came to us through Sam Skaggs and those clients. Um, and we've just really enjoyed getting to know uh, Sam's former clients before he retired and just um, you know, improving our investment offerings uh, by having the resilient portfolio as well. Great. And I'm going to ask how people can reach you. And I have one other question, but before I go there, is there anything else that you want to touch on? Circle back. We've covered a fair bit, though. I feel like we could keep going for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there's really nothing else that I, I'd add. I mean, I, I just see, you know, we, we sort of started talking about music and uh, I see working on the team as really being an important part of how we do business. Uh, I have a lot of experience playing chamber music and and really think a lot about what I did in my previous career versus what I'm doing now. And, and one really nice uh, sort of overlap I see is in, you know, chamber music, like imagine playing in a piano trio or a string quartet the most successful groups are the ones that have, you know, each individual player being like a soloist, like caliber, you know, level of playing. And I really feel like our firm captures that really well because 
each person has a technical proficiency that if they were alone, they would be an excellent advisor. But you just get that, you know, some is better than the parts uh, effect with, with um, you know, three advisors or and some teams even have four advisors. It's just a really neat model that I don't see uh, very often in our industry. Um, so I, I, I just think that's really great and, and particularly uh, comfortable for me uh, having made that transition from, uh, from classical music. Love the tie-in. And what are you doing with music these days? Uh, I sub with Vancouver Symphony here in town. And um, I've had a few students in the area and mostly, I guess, uh, staying in shape, playing in my basement, because you never know when the phone's going to ring. Uh, I did a recording session recently for a new musical that's uh, in production about the life of Nikola Tesla. So you never know. You just have to be ready. Nice. And are you training for any marathons? I am. Uh, I won't disclose where and when because i don't want anybody to be looking at my race results <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> be my, my daughter my daughter's two and a half and it's the, having the training time over the last few years has been difficult but uh, adam and i just went on a run this weekend and we're chatting about it and uh we it, it's fun to have that support system but it'll be my first marathon in five years okay good for you I yeah, imagine thanks. I am not a parent, but I'm sure all of them with a two and a half year old will be impressed. Uh, and I liked, uh, I, well, I ask all my guests if they have a personal tip on a life transition, it can be related to what we've talked about for the last hour. It can be completely just another something you've experienced in your life that involved life is kind of transitions, but. Yeah, and music too. The transitions are the hardest part, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, I would just say be bold. Uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to attempt something. I mean, yeah, obviously failure is okay and all of that, but I think it takes a lot of, I don't know if chutzpah is the right word, but it just takes that inner strength to even start the process of voluntarily undergoing a transition. Um, I sort of explained that transitioning to this career was a multi-year process. Uh, all told, I think it was about five years from when I started studying to be a CFP to actually getting the certification with all of the experience and passing the exam and having, you know, this transition back to the Pacific Northwest. Um, and there were a lot of sort of dark nights of the soul, <laughs> but um, it actually, when we decided to really go for it, my wife and I, um, we really blew up our lives, actually. Um, my wife had a business in Southern California, which she ended up selling after I changed careers. But I, I would just say, yeah, be bold, because this may sound crazy, but we made these decisions kind of all at once, because one decision leads to another decision leads to another decision. It's just a big dramatic mess. So we took a road trip for about three months. Uh, we you know, borrowed my father-in-law's RV and drove all around the U.S. visiting uh, uh, the national parks and just kind of asked that question, what if? And it just led to this big transition where we moved from Southern California to Washington. I changed careers. She sold her business. Uh, we decided to have a child. We bought a house. Um, obviously not everything can happen all at once, but it, it's, it can be upsetting to start that process of asking the questions and making those dreams. Um, so yeah, just go for it. Be bold, blow it up, see what happens. And if it doesn't work, then be bold again and make a different decision. Nice. Well, that is a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much. And it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. How can people find you and, and your team? Yeah, our website is fp-financial.com. And my email address is jonathan at fp-financial. Don't forget the dash. And it's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. 
Thank you. And we will link to the website, which has your contact information there as well. Excellent. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. That's all for this week. You can find show notes for this show and prior episodes and future episodes at lizsmithlaw.com. And if you're interested in scheduling a meeting with us to find out what your next step would be for your estate planning, visit us at bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Again, that's bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Or find the link at lizsmithlaw.com. We look forward to seeing you again right here, same place, same time, two weeks from now. Thank you so much. 